Now, as we come before the Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12? Turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. Ah, and before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, the word that we now hear from is breathed out by you. And you tell us that your word is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, that we would be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, we want to be that as followers of you. Would you make us complete? Guide us now in the hearing of your word. Would you bring light to our minds and hearts by your spirit? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be here in Hebrews chapter 12. I want to clip out a section here uh, toward the front. We'll begin in verse uh, 3 and read a number of verses here. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is God's word. Now, in the previous section, immediately before this, which we just looked at last week, we unpacked the idea there of the Christian life as an ultra-marathon. That the call of God there is really to run the long race that's set before us with endurance. 
And that endurance, you'll remember, is not just about gritting your teeth. It's not just about getting through to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. This endurance here is about having our faith strengthened as we run. That Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, would transform us to continue to endure by his power. So now, the author is expanding here on this idea of endurance. And here, he shows us how we must undergo discipline. Discipline. That's the major theme of this section of text, and that's our focus today. Now, when it comes to discipline, it might be your instinct that even if discipline is necessary, aspects of it will not be pleasant. And that would be a correct instinct. Uh, but to call it unpleasant is an understatement. In fact, there's a word in this section of text that's a little bit unsettling, at least to me, even though it's a very tiny word. In verse 4, look here. The author says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's that little word, yet, that gets at me. You have not yet resisted. It's as if he's saying to the Hebrews, listen, I understand that you are already facing struggle now. But there are still times that are yet ahead of you that will be more difficult. It's going to hurt. There will be blood drawn. And yet you have to face it. This situation reminds me of a scene in Pilgrim's Progress. I know I return to this every so often, but I just love it. But it's, it's old, you know. This Pilgrim's Progress is from the 1600s, but it's never been out of print since then, so it's got some good things to say to us. The story on the whole is, is the story of Christian's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And on Christian's way, the path that he's following comes to the foot of what's called Hill difficulty. And on, as he looks at the path, if you've ever hiked a mountain, you know that there's often what's called switchbacks, that it kind of zigzags up the mountain that's to kind of keep it from getting too steep. But there are no switchbacks here. The way is straight up hill difficulty. And there are companions, too, two companions with Christian, who, as they look at hill difficulty, notice that there are two paths that diverge, and they seem to go on the sides. They look easier. Perhaps, then, they will be a shortcut around hill difficulty. The name of one path is danger. The name of the other path is destruction. And Christian's companions choose to take those paths, one leads off into a deep wood, the other to the dark mountains, and neither of them is ever seen again. But Christian looks up hill difficulty, and he says to himself a poem, like we all do in facing difficulty, right? He pulls out a poem 
Some of you do. I know some of you do. He pulls out a poem out of his heart. He says this, For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up, heart. Let us neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult the right way to go than wrong though easy whose end is woe. And as he says that, he begins to ascend the hill. And John Bunyan, the writer, uh, tells us there that Christian's journey has gone from running to going, then goes from going to clamoring, then from clamoring to crawling on his hands and knees as he's going up the jagged, steep rock of hill difficulty. And surely as he journeys that way, his hands are sometimes cut, his knees often scraped. Hill difficulty draws blood from him. Now, as I look at that scene, just myself, I have to be honest, I wonder then if I have enough self-discipline for something like this. I mean, I struggle sometimes with discipline about even very little things. Trying to go to the gym, it's been a little bit. Trying to keep a rein on the things I say. Trying to manage the time that I spend on my phone. And I don't even have any poetry to help me out. The good news here is that the source of hope when we face hill difficulty is that the author is not, is not talking about self-discipline here, as important as that may be. What the author is talking about, if you look in verse 5, is the discipline of the Lord. It is a discipline that comes from God. And this discipline is good for us. We'll get to that in just a moment. But I want to set us up here with the structure of the rest of our time. I want to ask here of this text three questions about the Lord's discipline. Those three questions are these. First, what is it? Second, why does he do it? And three, how do we respond to it? So about the Lord's discipline, what is it? Why does he do it? And how do we respond to it? So let's get after it. First question, what is it? What is the Lord's discipline? If we were to only look at the opening section here, just verses 5 and 6, you can see there that the author is quoting from the book of Proverbs. Maybe if you're looking at an actual book, uh, a Bible and that's not just an app, maybe in the app too, the, this section is indented. Does it look that way in your Bibles? That's to show that there's a, quote, a, partic- a long quotation happening here, that he's pulling it out of the Old Testament. The author here, when he's talking about discipline in this section, uses words like reproof or chastise. Uh, some translations use the words rebuke. I think the King James uh, uses the translation scourge, which... Reminds me of pirates, at least. I don't know. That's what I think of when I think of scourging. Uh, but this is often the kind of thing that, we, that comes to mind when we hear the word discipline, some sort of punishment. 
We often think of discipline as the result of doing something bad. So if I walk into a room and my kid is tap dancing on the kitchen table, not a true story. Really not a true story. Uh, But if that were the case, uh, it might be appropriate to spank or or to give a time out or to add extra chores, however it is that you do discipline in your home. Each of those punishments may be an appropriate disciplinary response, but, but punishment is only part of discipline. And I would even say it's the lesser part of discipline here. If we keep reading, we can see what the center of discipline is. I think the key for us is in verse 11. If you read with me, let me read it again. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Listen, to those who have been trained by it. To those who have been trained by it, discipline is about training. And sometimes that training has to be not to do something bad, not to dance on the kitchen table. And in that sense, discipline is punishment. But more often, we see training as an increase of things that are good. So when it comes to things like academics and higher education, we sometimes hear various fields of study called disciplines. You might be studying the discipline of microbiology in college, say, or the discipline of set design or, or Asian history, whatever, you know, there's lot, tons of them, various disciplines in academia. Even outside the area of official study in academics, we often talk about disciplines as particular areas of focus. So there can be the discipline of becoming a piano player or a golfer, a mechanic, you know, a cook, a painter, a writer, even the discipline of becoming a good listener. And we know that these sorts of things aren't just magic. I don't just become a good piano player overnight. I've tried. It takes a long time to get where you are. This calls for some very serious attention and energy and work to build into these things. So we should expect that any discipline that is worthwhile will, on some level, be costly to us. The word that's translated as trained here is specifically drawing on the image of an athlete, a gymnast even. So if we think of the modern examples of of gymnasts, let's take even just the gymnasts that work on the rings. So in order to do that, think about the number of weights a person would need to lift in order to be able to do that. I mean, these guys are huge. Uh, Think about the number of blisters you would need to tape in order to be able to do that. Think about the number of falls you'd be able, need to get up from, the number of hours studying the mechanics of the flips, the number of corrections your coach would have to make, the number of injuries you would have to nurse and care for, the number of days and weeks and years and decades even of time put in to be able to do that. That is the discipline of training. And there is no way around it 
if you're, if you're wanting to become a strong gymnast, the Christian walk is no different. There are no shortcuts. There are no quick fixes. There are no 30 days to a new you. If you want to become a strong Christian, Christ must discipline you. So we need to put out of our minds the idea that discipline is only for little kids who do bad things. That we outgrow discipline as long as we can learn not to dance on the table. Discipline in this sense is for all of us. It is the continued training in what God says is good. This is how we're to grow in his joy, grow in his boldness, grow in his forgiveness. That now that Christ has fully satisfied for all of our sin by the work of his Christ, by the work of his cross, Jesus now trains us to take our cross and follow him. So the answer to our first question, what is discipline, is discipline is focused training from God. It's focused training from God. Now, that brings us to the second question. Why does he do it? Why does God discipline us? Before we dig into this, I first want to make what I think is an important acknowledgement. I know that there are some people who are in a position to discipline others that do so for selfish motives. Sometimes discipline can become about wielding power or relishing control or manipulating others into doing what you would have them do for your own ends. In its worst forms, those can spiral even into abuse. These are serious things in deep need of the healing of Jesus. Discipline in the world is not always used for good ends. And if you have been on the receiving end of some very bad discipline, I'm very sorry. We want to do everything we can to help you work through that. I also want to encourage you, if you've been on the receiving end of some bad discipline, do not let that experience cause you to be cynical about the discipline of the Lord. Because the discipline of the Lord is different than that. The discipline of the Lord is good. Because his discipline is not about getting something from us. It's about giving something to us. You can see it in verse... 10, the author says, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, but God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. 
He's giving us good by his discipline. It's not only for his good, although that's also true, it's for ours, and he's sharing his holiness with us. He's giving us his holiness. We'll talk more about that next week, but at least to see that he shares it with us now. There is pain in even good discipline, but good discipline is for later yielding a harvest of fruit that is in us. For us, it becomes a source of blessing, of healing, of rest even. God disciplines us because it's good for us. But the main reason you'll see that he disciplines us, the emphasis here is because God is a father. That's the main reason given, because God is our father. And the author says here, look, listener, all you have to do is take a look at your own lives. You know this is true. If you just look around, you know uh, that, there, that every good dad disciplines his kids. Not just to make them not dance on the kitchen table. He disciplines them as he sees best to train them in what is right and good and true. He teaches them how to, he teaches his kids how to manage money in order to be able to provide and to be generous to others. A good father might discipline his kids on how to change a tire or change their attitude. A good dad might discipline his kids on how to work hard and to be thankful as we work, how to be brave when we're afraid, how to be sad yet hopeful when we face a loss, how, how maybe even to sew a button back on after it's fallen off of our coat. These are the sorts of things that good dads do. And if, if this is true of earthly dads who even at their best are still very deeply flawed, how much truer would this find its expression in our perfectly, perfect heavenly father? Sometimes the discipline of God is painful and yet that very discipline is evidence, he says, of God's care for us. It's proof that God really is a father to us. It shows that we're really his kids and that he really loves us. Which means that we may need to rethink or at least reframe how we think about love. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Problem of Pain. It's been a while since I've cited C.S. Lewis, so I guess I'm overdue. Um, but he addresses this issue of pain and thinking through its relationship to love. This is what he tells us. What would really satisfy us, at least we think, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said, if anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a particular senile benevolence who, as they like to say, like to see young people enjoying themselves. 
and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of every day, a good time was had by all. Not many people, I admit, would formulate a theology in precisely those terms, but a conception not very different lurks at the back of many minds, and I don't claim to be an exception. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines, but since it is abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe, nevertheless, that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. My conception of love needs correction. I think he's right there. Perhaps we even need, would benefit from a similar sort of correction here. We need to put out of our minds the idea that pain and love are at odds with one another. The idea that if I am in pain, then that means that God cannot love me. Put that thought out of your mind. We know that all people experience pain in this life. That tells us nothing, just the experience of pain. But not all people, not all people are being disciplined and trained by that pain. That is an experience that God reserves for his children. So do not pray that God would remove his discipline from you, that his discipline would cease, but rather embrace his discipline for what it is. It's a gift. It's a gift of love that a father gives to the children that he bought with the blood of Jesus. The reason why he disciplines us is because we are his own children. Now that brings us to the final question. What are we supposed to do with that? How do we respond to the Lord's discipline? The author in this section first shows us how not to respond. And I think that's wise, probably because he knows how easy it would be for us to go there. Look in verse 5. He says, don't regard lightly the discipline. In other words, don't despise it. And secondly, don't be weary under it. Do you ever catch yourself moving in that direction when you face the discipline of the Lord that stings? I do. I find myself being tempted to despise the discipline, to think, this is stupid. What is the point in this? And I want to just stomp off. Or on the flip side, that I find myself tempted toward weariness under the discipline, to say, I can't handle this, I'm done, and to buckle under it. But there is an alternative given here to stomping off or to buckling under. There's a different way to move our legs here, and it's given to us in, in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight for your feet so that what is lame may, be, may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. In other words, 
by the Lord's grace, submit to God's discipline. Submit to his discipline. That's our response. And I know this can be hard. It can be very challenging, but it is absolutely possible with the help of God's Spirit. Especially in light of everything we've just heard, if we see God's discipline toward us as something that is actually training for our good, that is at the hand of a Father who loves us, that will change how we feel about discipline. We will see even the pain of discipline as unpleasant, but the whole of discipline will still be desirable. It's a rare and precious treasure given to us. And in fact, God is in a very unique position to give us this gift. The best discipline comes from a place of both authority and love. And we don't see both of those things together in many places. We often see authority without love and discipline. The government, for example, has authority, but does not particularly love me, us. A boss has authority over you, but is not likely to particularly love you. The bank has authority over you and your house loan but has no love. And on the flip side, we see many others who have love, but not necessarily authority. Our spouses love us, but don't have authority over us in the same way. Our friends may love us, but don't have authority. Our neighbors may love us, but don't have authority over us. God the Father is uniquely both love and authority, so his discipline in the marriage of those is a rare gift. So don't waste it with your weariness. Don't throw it away by despising it. Instead, look for God's discipline. Look for his discipline as an opportunity that he gives you to grow in the experience of his grace, that this moment of pain would be producing in you an eternity of blessing. Let me close here with just one very broad example that I think will help us. Many of us are caretakers in various ways. I think perhaps all of us are caretakers in some way. Perhaps you're a caretaker of kids, got little ones in your home. Perhaps you're a caretaker in some measure of some other family member or you're a caretaker of a client or a customer, or you're a caretaker of students. Whatever it is, how might it change how you respond to that person if you saw difficulty from them as an opportunity of God's discipline? So when that person that you care for is stubborn and does not listen to you, This is an opportunity given to you by God that you would become more patient. When that person is ungrateful and thankless for all the things you do, that is an opportunity of God's training and discipline to make you more loving. 
when that person is outright mean, spiteful, or even hurtful towards you, that is an opportunity still of God's discipline to make you more forgiving. Discipline is difficult. It's difficult. It is hill difficulty. But if by God's grace you submit to it, Jesus will show you more of himself in that. And that is completely worth it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that these things are not possible by our own strength. Would you work this in us now? Help us to submit to your discipline. Would you help us to lift our drooping hands, to strengthen our weak knees, to make straight the paths for our feet? Help us to see all of this as a great gift of your love that would produce a harvest of righteousness in us. You're a good God and a good Father. Help us to trust you in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.